0: Let's pray together. Father, teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. Keep us ever mindful that you told us from the beginning, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Help us not to be so seized with astonishment when we find that to be true, but help us to look to you and to find your help and to find that you're with us when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Father, open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies, and not to dishonest gain, and establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name, amen. As we gather here this morning, we find this cursed world again seems to have turned in upon itself. There are wars and there are rumors of war. We've been watching the scenes from Ukraine this week as the invaders have marched in and Ukrainian women and children flee, bidding farewell to fathers and sons and brothers. Some of those goodbyes will be the last they see that father or husband or son. I watched a video this week of a young family, a father and a mother, and it looked like a, a little girl who couldn't have been more than seven or eight years old, and they were at the bus station, and the mother and the daughter were about to get on the bus to flee the city that was being invaded, and the father was staying behind but to fight because all the men are staying behind to do that. And they all embraced one another, And as they were about to get on, the father picked up this little girl in his arms like a man who may never see his little girl again. And he weeps and she weeps. And as the bus finishes loading, he puts his hand on the window where his little girl sits and he weeps as bitterly and as finally as I've ever seen anyone weep. There's a grieving across the world this morning, and there's a grieving in our own congregation. Yesterday morning, about 6.30 a.m., our little sister, Renna Abbott, finished her race. All of us, including her parents, feel like that, that race was too short, and we know that It was actually a really hard race at at the end for her. We praise the Lord that he saved her. And that we got to see her baptized right here just months ago. And we praise the Lord that she is with the Lord, uh, no longer suffering and we're all going to come together again on Friday, and we're going to remember Renna, and we're going to remember the resurrection. This morning, though, I don't know how you're feeling, but I feel like Romans eight twenty two: The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And we feel that acutely sometimes, don't we? All people suffer, but not all of us suffer in the same way. Not everyone sees God's hand in their suffering. Even among those who do acknowledge it, not all people can accept it. For some people, suffering becomes the testing that refines and shapes them into the image of Jesus. And for other people, suffering gives way to bitterness and to resentment and even to hatred towards God. It becomes the once and for all moment that they turn away from the Lord forever. And they shake their fist at God and they go their own way. And so the question that I want to press upon you this morning, brothers and sisters, is this. How do you respond to grief and to suffering when it comes into your life? And I'm talking about any kind of grief and suffering. From the small things to the big things. from, From the loss of a job to the loss of a friend. Maybe you've buried a loved one or even a spouse. Maybe you have a chronic disease. Keeps you in pain all the time. Maybe it's something less than that. Maybe it's something more than that. The question is, how have you responded? Do you feel yourself being pulled toward God by the trial? Or do you feel yourself being pulled away from God by the trial? How you answer that question reveals what is the most important thing about you. Faithfulness to Jesus is proven not so much by how you handle prosperity and health, but how you endure suffering. That's where it's proven. I want you to open up your Bibles to Job chapter 1. If you know Job, you know that this story is not for the faint of heart. If ever there was a man who suffered, it was Job. And this book that bears his name absolutely is devastating to read. The majority of the book is comprised of these conversations conversations between Job and his foolish friends. But the first two chapters tell us what happened to Job and why. And that's where I want us to focus our attention this morning, on those first two chapters. And I want us to focus on three questions as we move through the text together. And I'm going to tell you what those questions are. Is God enough when the devil threatens? Is God enough when you grieve? Is God enough when your health fails? So that first question Is God enough when the devil threatens? Everybody look at verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Job is a little bit of a mysterious figure for us in Scripture. He's mentioned only one other time in the Bible besides here in this book. And it's in Ezekiel 14 where God identifies Job as a righteous man. But from the rest of Scripture, we don't know much about him. We know from this book that he's from the land of Uz, which we think is somewhere east of Jerusalem across the Jordan. But when you read the book of Job, um, it's, it's interesting to see that there doesn't seem to be a Mosaic law yet. So that hasn't happened. Um, You see Job offering sacrifices for his family. And so the situation reads something similar to the time maybe of the patriarchs, before the giving of the law. Maybe Job was living sometime around the the time of Abraham, maybe even before the Abrahamic covenant when God began to focus his dealings upon Abraham and his descendants. In any case, what's important about Job is not where he's from or what he does, But the fact that the text says in verse 1 that he's blameless and upright and a man who fears God and turns away from evil. In fact, the King James Version says that he was perfect. But don't let any of that language mislead you. The text is not saying that Job lived a sinless life. Certainly he didn't. We know later in the book that Job himself makes it clear that he's a sinner. What does it mean then that he was blameless, upright, fearing God? What it means is that his public deeds and reputation were such that there was no observable sin to speak of in his life. He's blameless in the sense that he's known as an honest man. He's faithful to his marriage. He's good to his servants. He's generous to the poor. He doesn't worship idols. Later in this book, in chapter 31, he denies wrongdoing on all of those accounts. But we could also say that his blamelessness is reflected in one sense in his enormous wealth. In in proverbial terms, that was a a sign, that kind of blessing was a sign of blamelessness. Look at verse 2. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Now, in those days, a man's wealth wasn't measured in dollars and cents, but in children and in livestock and in land. So it's clear that Job was a very rich man by proverbial standards the blessing of God appeared to be upon him. Think of Proverbs 10.22. It's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. And he adds no sorrow to it. But notice also, the not just the piety of Job, but also his love for his family. Look at verse 4. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it came about when the days of feasting had completed their cycle that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. There's really no other way to describe Job's Children, except to say that they, they sound like they were just a big, happy family. You've got these grown children who love each other enough that they are coming together regularly for feasting and for fellowship. They seem to be a blessing to their father. And, and after their feasting, Job would summon them, each one, and he would, it says, sanctify them, offering sacrifice for any sins that they may have. So when you think of Job, you, you don't think of a stereotypical distant father who's too busy for his kids. Job not only loves his children, but he's deeply concerned about their relationship to God. If they've sinned, he wants to do everything he can to see his children reconciled to God. In that sense, Job is not very different from many of the parents In this room right now, parents, how many of you find your greatest joy in knowing that your children are walking in the truth? And you find your greatest grief when they are not walking in the truth. That's exactly the kind of father that Job is. He's summoning his children to him, inquiring into what's going on, trying to make sure that none of them have sinned. And it says... He wants to make sure that none of them have cursed God in their hearts. He's put this standard out there that they would never curse God in their hearts or blame God. And it turns out that the very thing that he's teaching them is the very thing that he's going to be tested in. Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Long before the test came. The teaching was going out of his mouth to his children. And I'm sure as he summoned each child to himself, this was Job's way of urging his children to live their lives in the fear of God. Job loves his kids, and Job loves God. So when you read this description of Job, you're supposed to be thinking about him you know, this is a really good man, he's incredible. But notice that while all this domestic piety is unfolding in Job's life, there emerges a plan against Job. In verse 6, the scene shifts from a description of Job to a description of the throne room of heaven. Look at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, I won't be surprised if you did a double take when you see that little phrase, sons of God, we typically think of that term, son of God, to refer uniquely to Jesus. But it was actually a phrase that was used in the Old Testament in a non-literal way to refer to a group of people who follow a leader as if, it, as if they, he were their father. And so the sons of God here, then, you should think of, you know, not literally sons of God as as in Jesus, but think of a heavenly council gathered before God like a king, like a king with his court. And so these beings, the sons of God, are likely, I think, angelic beings who serve like God's cabinet or like his executive council. So what happens here? Satan appears before God in front of the entire heavenly council. And then the Lord, the Lord asks Satan a question. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Now, the important thing to remember here is that when God asks Satan a question, it's not because he needs to find out information. God is asking questions all over the Bible, and it's not because he needs information. God knows where Satan has been. God knows what Satan has been doing. The point of the question is to engage Satan in a dialogue. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Take a minute and allow yourself to be astonished at this conversation. Who is the first person to bring up Job in this conversation? God knows full well who he's talking to when he addresses Satan. He knows that the enemy stalks about to steal and to kill and to destroy, John 10.10 says. He knows that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8 says. God knows what Satan is and what he has been doing and yet God is the one who raises Job's name before this destroyer. Let that land on you. Yes, it will be Satan who brings down unspeakable suffering upon Job's head. But who has the initiative in all of this? God does. Which means that you need to be asking yourself at this point, What kind of a God is this? And what is he doing? Look at verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and increased in the, and have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Satan, in essence, says to God, You think Job is following you, honoring you because he loves you? That's not what's going on here. He's only following you because of his stuff. Look at all his wealth, look at all of his children. Take away all of that and you will find out who Job really is. You'll find out who he really loves and you're going to find out it's not really you. And so here's the big question about suffering that the book of Job asks. The big question is not why do bad things happen to good people? That's not the question. It's will good people love God when bad things happen? That's the question. This book is not mainly about Job. It's about God. Is God big enough and satisfying enough and weighty enough and worthy enough to be worshipped when you suffer? Satan says, no, he isn't. And the question for Job and the question for you, the question of your life is, will you agree with Satan or will you agree with God? God is about to begin separating Job from all of his blessings. And that separation is going to come at great cost and with great tears and grieving for Job. And the question before Job is the same question that's before you and me. Is God enough for me? Can you love God only when your life is at ease? Or can you also love God when he takes your ease and your stuff away? Do you love God for God? Or do you love him only for the gifts and the blessings that he brings into your life? Suffering reveals what kind of person you are. Is God enough when the devil threatens? The second question. Is God enough when you grieve? Everybody look at verse 13. Now it happened on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. That a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing And the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid. On the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Three messengers and three absolutely devastating revelations. Job has just been informed that he's lost all of his wealth. All of it. There's no insurance coverage. There's no nest egg. It's just gone. Every single one of the 11,000 Animals listed in verse 3 are gone, and with it there's been this unspeakable human toll. Think about it. 11,000 head of livestock he has, and he's got servants taking care of 11,000 head of livestock. How many servants do you think are involved with this? They're all dead. But that's not the end of it, because there's a fourth messenger. Everybody look at verse 18. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Job, your children, they are gone. All seven of your sons, Job, are gone. Your three little girls are crushed along with them, Job. There's not one left for you to summon to yourself or to offer sacrifices for or for you to care for or for you to pray for. You can't summon any of them again. They've all perished, Job, and you are desolate. And so Job faces the question, is God enough? Would God be enough if this had happened to you? What if all in one day you receive the news that you got fired from your work, there's no prospects for any new job, your identity has been stolen, and somebody has cleaned out all of your bank accounts, your 401K has just been seized by the government, You have no security at all for your future. You don't even know what you're going to eat tomorrow. And on top of all of that, you've just found out that your children were at a birthday party. And there was a gas leak. And an explosion. And they're all dead. How do you respond when the precious ones are taken away from you? Would God be enough for you? Look how Job answers. Look at verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. God is enough for Job. Satan said that Job would curse God to his face and Satan is wrong. God is good enough for Job. Job worships. But notice that Job's worship isn't a praise God anyhow kind of a thing. It's not, a, well, you know, all my kids are dead now. Easy come, easy go. That's not what's going on here. Job is worshiping through tears. Job is at the bottom of his despair. You need to think about heaving sobs of grief. Tearing his clothes, shaving his head, and mourning and falling to the ground. And worshiping. If you don't have a category for weeping and worshiping, you don't know what the Bible says about worship. One third of the Psalms are laments. Worshiping God through suffering does not mean that you cease to experience grief or loss. You will experience real grief, real pain, real loss, real tears streaming down your face. You will experience real despair. And the question for you is not whether you cry or not. The question is it in the moments... Of the crying and the weeping and the despairing. Is will God be enough for you? When he takes it all away. Will he be enough for you? Look what Job says in verse 21. And he said naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I shall return there. The Lord gave. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What sustains Job through suffering was the truth that he learned about God before the suffering. Job is not unfamiliar with the ways of God. He knows that he brought nothing into this world. He started out with nothing. All of his possessions were gifts from God. His children They were never his, really. They were gifts from God. God does him no wrong to take back what is his. Keep in mind here that Job knows nothing of what you and I know as we're reading this story. He doesn't know anything about this conversation between Satan and God. He knows nothing of God's purposes in this. At least not to that level of detail. He does know that the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans are bad guys. They're the ones that actually came and attacked. But even so, even though there are these people who were involved in making him bereft of his possessions, he still doesn't look to the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans as the ultimate cause of his situation. He says the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Not the Lord gave and the Sabaeans took away, or the Lord gave and the storm took away. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And Job is confessing that God is ultimately the one who brought this calamity into his life. Job doesn't have the book of Lamentations, and yet he still seems to know the truth of Lamentations 3.37. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Job seems to know this already and it's not even written. And so look what it says in verse 22. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Some of your translations say, nor did he charge God with wrongdoing. Job did not sin in what he spoke. He says that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and there was no sin in that, which means that statement was correct. When he said that the Lord took away from him all of his wealth, all of his children, he was right. And still Job does not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. And I think it's right here at verse 22 that God puts this great big fork in the road before us. Those who can respond like Job go down one path, and those who can't respond like Job go down Another, which one are you? The difference between those who respond like Job and those who respond like Satan said Job would respond is all the difference in the world. Indeed, it's the difference between being a Christian and not being one. It's the difference between knowing Christ and knowing God. And not knowing him. It's the difference between the seed sown on rocky soil. And the seed sown on the good soil. So that when the affliction or the the persecution arises. The seed on the rocky soil falls away. But the seed sown on the good soil stands. And bears fruit. Several years ago. I reviewed a book by a biblical scholar named Bart Ehrman. In this book, Ehrman describes um, why he's given up faith in the Bible, faith in God's word. And um, he, in fact, ends up being an agnostic. And as you're reading this book, he talks about all the scholarly reasons that he has for questioning scripture. And, you know, he just doesn't believe it's reliable for all these historical reasons. A few years later, he wrote another book. And revealed that his issue wasn't really a matter of his intellect, but a matter of, of the heart. He just could not believe in a God who would preside over so much suffering in the world. I'm going to read to you what he said. He says, about nine or ten years ago, I came to realize that I simply no longer believed the Christian message. He started out as an evangelical Christian. A large part of my movement away from the faith was driven by my concern for suffering. I simply no longer could hold to the view, which I took to be essential to the Christian faith, that God was active in the world, that he answered prayer, that he intervened on behalf of his faithful, that he brought salvation in the past and that in the future he would set to rights all that was wrong, that he would vindicate his name and his people and bring in a good kingdom. We live in a world in which a child dies every five seconds of starvation. Every five seconds, every minute, there are 25 people who die because they don't have enough clean water to drink. Every hour, 700 people die of malaria. Where is God in all of this? We live in a world in which earthquakes in the Himalayas kill 50,000 people and leave 3 million without shelter in the face of oncoming winter. We live in a world where a hurricane destroys New Orleans, where a tsunami kills 300,000 people in one fell swoop. Where millions of children are born with horrible birth defects. And where is God? To say that he eventually will make right all that is wrong seems to me now to be pure wishful thinking. And you can trace out what the issue here is with this man. His ultimate issue with God isn't really in his head. It's not intellectual. It's not a lack of proofs. His real issue is in his heart. He saw that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away and he says, cursed be the name of the Lord. He sees the God of the Bible and he doesn't like what he sees. The crushing weight of human suffering was just too much to reconcile with the idea of a good God. How many of you have ever been tempted to respond to the hard things in your life In the same way as this man did, you look at the calamity and the grief that God brings into your life, and you're tempted to no longer worship a God who would preside over so much pain. You just kind of want to check out at this point. This book, Job, all of Scripture really, is written to show you that God is enough. This world is broken because it's under a curse because of sin. A sin committed by our father Adam and a sin that is in us and that we have approved of. This world is broken because of that. And God is going to make it unbroken. And in the meantime, he's calling people to himself to show them mercy. God is a good God. It's us that are bad. It's not him. God is bigger and weightier than any burden you could possibly bear. Because God promises that no matter how hard things are right now, he will make all things new in the end for those who know him and love him. Psalm 34, 17, The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The Lord hasn't forsaken you or left you when you suffer. He knows right where you are. Jesus told us that it would be this way. The purpose of suffering is to get you to pray Psalm 34 and to mean it. It's to bring you to a point that you will stop relying on yourself, your own strength, your own resources, your own abilities. When you feel healthy and when you're in a season of peace and tranquility in your life, it's easy to rely on yourself and to forget about God. But suffering changes all of that. Suffering is the condition in which God rattles your cage and shouts, No, you need to have me. You need me more than you need anything else. You need me. And I will take away every other thing that you're trusting in until you trust in me. So the point is to remove your confidence from yourself and to place it all in God. We are barely aware of how little we trust in the Lord until He forces the issue with suffering. And it's in the midst of it that God shows Himself strong and ready to care for us and, and to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with us. Is God enough when the devil threatens? Yes, He is. Is God enough when you grieve? Yes, He is. Finally, is God enough when your health fails? Everybody look at chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? But there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. Notice two things about this exchange. First, Satan is renewing the challenge. He thinks his theory is correct still. He still thinks he can prove that God isn't enough for Job. It's one thing to take a man's stuff away, but if you take a man's health away, then you will see where his true allegiance lies. And Satan is saying that Job minus his health equals cursing God. But also notice who's in control here. It's absolutely clear at this point what's going on here. Satan is not allowed to do what he wants. Uh, Satan comes into the presence of God and he asks permission for things. But Satan's not ruling the world. God rules the world and God rules Satan. Satan is a dog on a leash. And sometimes God lets the leash out and other times he doesn't. God uses Satan, not for Satan's purposes. But for God's purposes. Satan is asking for a little more leash and God's going to give it. Look at verse seven. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potcher to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Can you imagine a more wretched situation than this one? He's lost everything, his possessions, his health, his children, and now his wife is turning on him. It's as if Satan is using her as his mouthpiece. Satan has already said, Job's going to curse you. Job's going to curse you. Take away that stuff. You'll see. And now Job's own wife is saying, curse God and die. Who's he going to listen to? Satan or God? Verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Notice again, where does Job say adversity comes from? He says that it comes from God. And the text says that Job did not sin with his lips. Job speaks truthfully about God's sovereignty over his pain. And yet he doesn't blame God or charge God with wrongdoing. Would you do the same if you were in Job's shoes? Or would you cave to the pressure to the people who are telling you that God is evil because of what's come into your life? That God is not worth following anymore you know i've heard people say from time to time that it's okay to be angry with god you ever heard that before when you have some deep pain or grief come into your life or when you see some great evil or injustice in the world some people say some christians even would say it's okay to express your bitterness and resentment of god for what he has done Sometimes they will quote scripture in defense of this. They will say that the Psalms express raw human emotion and sometimes they express even anger at God. It's not true, but that's what they claim. There's not a single Psalm that teaches us that it's right to be angry with God. There's not a single verse in the Bible that says that it's okay to be angry with God. You can look high and low in the Psalms and elsewhere and you will find no such expression. It's not there. What is there is desperation, grief, anxiety, frustration, lament. None of it, though, shows justified anger against God. There is a world of difference between how long, O Lord, and how dare you, O Lord. The Psalms have a great deal of the former, but none of the latter. Why am I talking about this? This discussion is not an academic speculation about how many angels can dance on the head of the pen. We all have skin in the game here because we all suffer. Some of you are suffering right now. Some may be feeling right now that you're hanging by a really thin thread. And the last thing that people who are in that situation, the last thing that people need to hear in that moment, Is that it's right for you to be angry with God. That you should just curse God. And die. What that would. For for a person to do that. It would be for that person to say that it's okay to disapprove of God's character and his ways. He's not enough for me. He's to blame. He's the problem in my life. Not the solution in my life. But that's. The opposite of what you need when you suffer. And it's the opposite of what Job does and what God's word tells us to do. God's word instructs us that no matter how we feel, no matter how low we go, God is good and holy and trustworthy in all that he is and in all that he does. The faithful response to affliction is to believe in God's goodness and faithfulness no matter how bad things get. That is the fight for faith that all of us have to wage when the chips are down. You know, the Bible commands us in Ephesians 4, Be angry and yet do not sin. What does that mean except that some anger is sinful and some anger isn't? It's good and right to be angry at evil and sin and the devil. It is sinful to be angry at what is good and right and true. And that's why it's never okay or never right. It's never the answer to be angry at God. He's always good and right and true. And to set yourself against him in the moments when the chips are down is to set yourself against what is good. It's to set yourself against the one who's working all things together for your good. It's to close your eyes to the truth that if you're his, there's nothing that can separate from you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. No matter how painful and perplexing his ways may seem to us, it's never right for us to be angry at him, ever. But it is right for us to tell him about it when we are. If you're struggling with the temptation to blame God and to curse God and to charge him with wrongdoing... You should confess that sin to him. You should let him know that you're struggling. You should ask for strength. You should confess it to a brother or a sister and let the people of God come around you and strengthen your hands. That's what we're here for. And you need to know that God is enough for you. You know, at the end of the story of Job, You can look at the last chapter and you find out that all that God took from Job he gave back to him and then some and it's as if he is saying to all the world you need to understand that no one who has left houses or brothers or mothers or family or children is going to lose those things forever but he's going to gain those things and then some When he comes into the kingdom. The Bible says in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. Whatever it is we're going through now, it's not, you can't even compare it to what he's going to bring to us in the future, to what it's going to be in the new heavens and the new earth to the restored relationships with loved ones that we've been bereft of for many years. It's not going to be worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed in us. Is God good enough when the devil threatens? Yes, he is. Is he good enough when you grieve? Yes, he is. Is he good enough when your health fails? Yes, he is. If you don't know this God, you need to know him. The Bible says that you are a sinner. And the Bible says that you are justly under condemnation because of your sin. God doesn't owe you good things. He owes you judgment. That's what the Bible says. But the Bible also says that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even when you were weak and unworthy and shaking your fist at God, God was executing a plan for your salvation. He sent his own son to die the death that you deserved. And he raised him up to eternal life so that you could have eternal life. And you can't earn this. You don't deserve this. You will never deserve this. It's all earned for you by Christ. All you can do is receive it by faith. And if you will turn from your sin and receive Christ by faith, the Bible says you will be saved. And the Bible says that your eyes will be opened to know that God is enough for you. I want to close by reading you the words of a hymn. You may know it. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. Father, I pray that in the meantime, before you make all things new and before you make everything plain to us, I pray that we would find you to be sweet and good and holy and enough for us. pray for sufferers in our congregation that they would find you to be enough for them that they wouldn't listen to the skeptics who are telling them to curse God and die but they would listen to the voice of the spirit of the son of God interceding for them that they would hear Jesus saying to Peter Simon, Simon The devil has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. Father, may the sufferers hear that today and know this to be true. Draw near to them through your spirit. Help them to turn their faces to their God who loves them and who cares for them. Lord, protect us by the power of God and the Holy Spirit. Keep us all the way until the end. Father, you know how to answer prayers that we don't even know to ask. And so we rely on you for this. We pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.